Thank you for the applause. Uh, Luke chapter 2. Let's do our best to put an end at least to this four weeks that we've been through. I mean, I'm going to do my best to tie this together. It's the fourth Sunday in the Advent season, and if you've been with us at all, uh, we've talked about some pretty profound topics. We've talked about the hope of salvation. We've talked about the peace that comes through the birth of Christ. We've talked about the joy of the message, really, that's right there in verse 10 of chapter 2, the good news of great joy. Uh, We talked last week about how joy is knowing that God is faithful, and and so you'll hear a lot of that again today. And today, the thing that's in the center for us is the, 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 the love of God, which I know in a church setting, it's there's potential that that one, you can yawn at that one because it just seems like an obvious thing to say that God loves you here in church. Uh, but I want to, us to engage with that around the Christmas story uh, a little bit. Let's start with verse 8. We, this has been our text pretty much the whole series, but uh, there's always more uh, to learn. Let's start with verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. We've said this every week. And so what Luke does in verse 8 is he takes us to a field that is, um, it's dark, it's nighttime, and there are these people there, these shepherds. Now, his wording is they're living out there, so they're working. They're working for their money, they're working for their pay. What was often the story in those days, because shepherds were extremely poor, they would hire themselves out, working odd jobs, different late-hour shifts and stuff. And so Luke, in this scene, in verse 8, he takes us to that field where there are these shepherds and they're working. Now, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Shepherds in those days were outcasts, marginalized people. Socially, they were outcasts because they were poor, very poor. They were dirty, gross, a nasty job. Honorable job, but no honor in the job. Sanitation workers of the day. I'm glad somebody's doing it, but I don't want to do it. And I don't want to spend time or hang out with people who do it. They're just nasty. Religiously, although I had a story. There's always a story. Um, uh, Where's Hannah? You'll know this story. You'll know this story. These two kids in my youth group in the summers would work on the garbage truck. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, So what are you doing this summer? I'm going to work on the garbage truck. Really? Yeah, we just hang on the back and drive through the neighborhoods, and they make money this way. And I'm like, and they're like, it's so fun driving on the back of the truck. I was like, that would be fun. Would it not? I mean, didn't you always think that as a kid? Man, I want that job. Okay, all right. Sorry. Uh, religiously, they are marginalized because of purity laws, cleanliness laws. They're nasty, dirty. Put it this way, the sheep, a sheep could get into the temple, albeit to his demise, (laughs) but the shepherd could not. Thanks for the sheep, but you'll have to stay outside because you're nasty, you're dirty, can't touch you, can't be near you. Uh, An ancient rabbinical teaching, next slide, this is great, by the way. If you ever get a chance to find that piece of literature and read it, it's just totally worth it. A man should not teach his son to be a donkey driver or a camel driver or a barber or a sailor or, their word for shepherd, a herdsman or a shopkeeper, for their craft is the craft of robbers. This is how you're thought of as a shepherd. 
Now, put yourself in their position. How does this, on the slide here, how does this make you feel if you know that this is how people feel about you? How does that make you feel? It becomes, it's like a a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like preacher's kids. Well, we all know about preacher's kids. What does that do to the kid? Well, eventually they live into that, perhaps. Or they withdraw completely. They don't want anything to do with it. They either embrace the reputation or they run from it completely. And so you have to assume that for the same, the same thing is happening with these shepherds. Now Luke does something very interesting here. There's no names. There's no name of the field, no name of the shepherds, no number of shepherds, just a generic dark field with shepherds working and living out there. And the opinion of the shepherds and the culture is that they're not worth it. That's scene two. Let's look at scene one, verses one through three. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken in the entire Roman world. This was the first census to be taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. Again, something we skip over because Linus says it in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. But notice the drastic difference between this scene and in verse 8, that scene. In your Bibles, there's probably some space between verses 7 and 8, and the reason is because it's a scene change. And the space between verses 7 and 8 is infinite. Because in scene 1, we have names and places and stuff mentioned like Caesar Augustus, decree, census, entire Roman world, Quirinius, governor of Syria, Syria. And then it says in verse 3, and everyone went to his town to register. So in this scene, we have things like power, authority, influence, sovereignty. This is what Luke is painting for us in this scene, right there on the screen. Power, authority, influence, sovereignty. So in other words, whatever the powers to be decide in an office in Rome, the world does. That's verse 3. They think it's necessary to do a census. It's time to get it going. Verse 3, so everyone did it. Everyone went to his own town to register. Continuing the story, that's what Joseph and Mary do. They pack up their things, they go to Bethlehem, which is their, the town of their ancestry, and they register. Again, another, and Luke does this a lot, another signal that for Joseph and Mary and the rest of the occupied world, your life is not your own. We say you do. Jump, you jump. And so scene one It's drastically different than scene two. Scene one is, again, power, authority, influence, sovereignty. Scene two is forgotten, unknown, dark, worthless, unlovable. Now, religiously, what we do with power, authority, influence um, is we look at somebody who has those things and we say they're blessed. Look at, look at what they have. Look at what's going on for them in their life. We look at organizations and say, God's favor must be on them because they're growing, flourishing, succeeding. In these days, in those days, with the deification of the emperors, the Caesars, the fastest growing religion in the days of Jesus was the Caesar cult. They would look at them and say the same things, but it would be phrased like, uh, the gods are favoring those people. The gods love 
them. Look at their lives. Look at how they get to live. Look at who they are. Look at what they have. Their gods must completely love them. And so we do that too. If I have, then I'm being blessed. If I don't, then he must hate me. And so Luke pulls us from scene one, power, authority, influence, sovereignty, into scene two, which again, we move from the city lights of Rome to the dark, unknown, unnamed field in an undisclosed location with unnamed shepherds working the fields at night, making extra money to make ends meet. And this is the best part. Hope to get an amen out of this. It's in that place, not scene one, but it's in scene two that God announces for the first time outside of Joseph and Mary that the Savior has come to the world. Can you get the message that, Jesus, uh, that uh, Luke is trying to send us? You would have thought it would have been over here. I mean, in the ancient sense, Rome had all the means to get the message out. All roads led to Rome. We could have gone to CNN, right? Could have gone there, but no. We go here to Georgia Public Television on commercial break when there's a guy in an old-school Jay Riggins suit <laughs> begging for money while you're on break from the Peter, Paul, and Mary special. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, again, a wonderful story of how God works. It's always upside down. And in my own estimate, it might have been easier to go the other route. Because what Caesar says, the world does. But he goes to a place where when these people say things, nothing happens. It's awesome. Look at verse 9. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were, again, what? Terrified. Why are they terrified? Well, it's paranormal. It's Blair Witch. It's weird. It's one of those things. But why? Really, why are they terrified? That's the question. Why do you get terrified in the presence of God? It's probably the same reasons. Now, the Bible talks a lot about fear of God. Um, but when it talks about the fear of God, it's a healthy fear. It basically means this. So when you come across all the texts that say, fear God, it's not like, <laughs> it's not that kind of thing. It's, it's this kind of posture that knows God's place, that he's first. What's the first commandment of the 10? You shall have no other gods, what, before me. It's just a statement saying, I'm first. I'm first in the universe. That rhymes. I'm first in the universe. There is no other. That's why he says, no other gods before me. So it's almost like a statement of who he is. You can't have other gods before me because there aren't any. And so fearing God is often associated with knowing his place and therefore knowing my place, which is not his place. So it's a, it's a proper posture. It's a proper understanding of where I, where I sit in the grand scheme of things. It's also associated with um, obedience. So when you see, like the Proverbs say, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, or the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. Again, it's not because I'm terrified of God that I'm a wise person. It's, it's connected to obedience and living wisely. 
almost like, a, like you really love your parent, but they scare you. Does that make sense? I mean, maybe your parents actually scare you, and that's a bad illustration. But it's this reverential fear, you know, this kind of like, I revere them, want to be like them, but I also know my place with them. But the Bible never, God never calls us to be terrified with Him. And I've found as a pastor, and if, just go with me here, most people are terrified of God. For whatever the reason, they're guilty for some reason, like they just feel guilty. They're struggling with a sin. There's shame in their history and their story. There's some kind of um, something in their past. And they're just terrified. Like when we say, uh, Jamie will come up at the end and say, um, unless he doesn't come back, then I'll say it. Uh, he'll say, hey, if you're a guest with us today, we have a room where you can go and just kind of meet people. Some of you will say, no way. Terrified. Uh, these community groups used to get in one. Nope, not going to happen. Why? I'm terrified. Because the closer I get, starting point, I don't want to get in that. Because that's, that's God getting too close. We like God at a distance. We like Him kind of over there where we can observe, critique, uh, assess. But when He gets close, like in this situation here, I mean, He just shows up in the field, the last place they thought He would be. It's, it can be terrifying for many, for many people. Let's pray together. Mm-mm. Who will pray for us? in this group. You know how you try to hide in a circle, which is impossible. I don't want to pray. It's terrifying. And so look at the text. The angel sees that they're terrified. And he says to them in verse 10, don't be what? Afraid. That's the sermon, by the way. That's it. That's the whole farm. Don't be afraid any longer to be in God's presence. I feel like that's a constant struggle for you and for me. To feel comfortable in God's presence, not afraid. From fear to comfort. There's a lot of miles between those two, but God is just saying through His messengers to the shepherds and to us through His Word today, don't be afraid about being in His presence. Don't do that. And I just love, again, that this is, this is the most often repeated command in the Scriptures, by the way. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, you just picture God going, they're always afraid. Does anybody see this? They're always afraid. I think about, uh, you don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah's, uh, when Isaiah is called to be a prophet, <laughs> so, so beautiful. Uh, in the year that King Huzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I mean, he picked the right day to work the temple, you would think. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The sound of their voices... Uh, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So you're thinking, this 
is an incredible worship service. God is there. There's some supernatural stuff happening. There's a song being sung, right? The choir is leading us in this holy, holy, holy song, and the band is so loud that it's shaking the thresholds of the temple, and it's filled with smoke. So it's like the ancient fog machine. It's a great place to be. So what does Isaiah say? He says, woe to me. We never feel this way coming into worship, by the way. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. So it's not, God's presence for Isaiah is not sweet. I'm working in the temple on the right day. It's like, oh man, he showed up. I am ruined, he says, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isn't that interesting? What does God's presence do to Isaiah? It brings out his sin. God is here. I have a bad mouth. Isn't that the first thing we notice when we think about God being near us? Is our faults, our failures, our shortcomings, the things that we struggle with. And here's Isaiah, blames himself, I'm a man of unclean lips, and then he points to his nation, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. And so he's frightened, he's terrified. But what's interesting is that God's just showing up to ask him to work for him. Just settle down. And then God says, who will go for me? And of course Isaiah says, I'll, I'll do it, I'll do it. Don't be afraid. John 3.16, if there was ever a, a verse that summarized the Christmas story, it's these words from Jesus when he speaks them uh, to, to Nicodemus saying, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. When I was a kid in youth group, our youth minister used this verse a lot, and he would say over and over and over, and I've probably said this as well, but, and this is a real, you know, filtered down, youth group ready way of putting it, but God loves you not because you are necessarily lovable, but just because he can. And I love the profoundness of this verse. There's no bottom to it. I mean, you can just keep looking at it. But God loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We, we usually stop there because that's where the poster board stops at the football games. But verse 17 is, can I say, better? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Not out of revenge, but out of love. So maybe you often think of time with God as confessional time, apology time, woe is me time. And there's a space for that. There's a time for that. But if that's what's driving your relationship with God, I will say it again. The message he is sending you today is do not be afraid. Because I love you. I love you. We have written on our wall, both back in one of the offices and uh, in the guest connection room, which, by the way, used to be the nursery. And I moved my office into the nursery, surrounded by cribs. And now it's like this sweet room. So if you go in there and come to me and go, nice office, Pastor. It was a nursery first, all right? So, uh, But I'm not complaining. Couches, coffee. Um, but on the wall in there, too, is this statement, and it's kind of a tenet. It really is one of the first tenets of our, of our church 
mission, and it says to see God renew the hearts of people is our, is our passion. That's it. At the end of the day, we just want to see people's hearts renewed. Now, we don't make that happen. Uh, Paul says it best in his letter to the Corinthians. He's like, look, we don't, we don't do the increase. We just plant the seed, and we water it, and God gives the increase. And so it's not that we manufacture and pump out life change. That's something that's, that God somehow does through our obedience to Him. But we want to be a place that sees it. Amen? We don't want to be a place that never sees that. Like, uh, if we never heard stories of God doing amazing things in the lives of people, then it would be, we would feel off mission. And so uh, we have that. And I see that in a couple of ways. Sometimes our hearts are renewed because they've been injured. Uh, And when it comes to church and Jesus and this whole experience, sometimes there's a history, and maybe you know this history, is that there's injury in that. There's injury in your church experience and your experience with God. That the church you grew up in was just scary. Just scaring everybody out of hell. Right? Just every time you went, it was just frightening. The preacher was frightening. Uh, The classes were frightening. The vibe was frightening. And so you're like on this long sort of rehab coming here every so often going, So sometimes we see people move from that to feeling comfortable in the presence of God. And that, that's amazing. We want to see that. Sometimes it's, we get emails or stories of people saying, I was in, I've been reading the Psalms or something like that. And they say, um, and God has really been changing me through this. That's, we look at that and go, that's a win. God is working and we get to be a place that does that. I got an email last week from a lady in our church, and uh, I emailed her and said, can I use some of this, because it's just perfect. And she said, absolutely. Um, We talked about the joy, the good news of great joy last week, and how joy is knowing that God is faithful. And the texts that I used last Sunday were Joshua 1.9, Matthew 28.20, and Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. All of these are just like where God is saying, I'm with you always, I'm not leaving you, etc., And then she emailed, and she said, I can't remember the exact date, but it was March 2008, sitting in my dining room studying the Bible one morning before work. And his words in Joshua 1.9 spoke so deeply to my soul that I memorized them almost instantly. And it was the first time I understood that God is, all caps, always with me. It was then that I began to let go of loneliness. So this is kind of the response. In November... God spoke just as clearly and personally through Matthew 28, 20, which is Jesus speaking to his disciples, I will always be with you, even to the very end of the age, he says. And then she said, that verse now hangs in my bedroom. And then later God led me to memorize Deuteronomy 31, verse 8, which is uh, Moses telling Joshua, you can do it. You can take over for me. God will be with you. And then she said, my devotion today was sitting and reflecting on how faithful God has been in my life. And I can say since March 2008 that I haven't struggled with that deep, depressing loneliness. Not that I don't get lonely, but it's not the same. It all began with those three verses, Joshua 1, 9, Matthew 28, 20, Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. And then she said, today has been a great day of fellowship with God. Thanks for sparking 
some memories with a message, with the message on Sunday. We want to see God renew the hearts of people. That's our passion. That's a, that's a good story of that. Someone feeling moving from like fear to comfort in uh, God's presence. In Hebrews 4, verse uh, 16, uh, this is a, just a, a wonderful way of putting it. Well, verses 14, it's worth it. Therefore, the writer says, since we have a great high priest, speaking of Jesus, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he came here. He spent time here. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And then verse 16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Do you hear that? Let us feel confident in here, in prayer, in reading the word, in just conversation about God. Let us feel confident in that moment so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. From fear to love. From fear to God's loving presence. Uh, John, 1 John 4, this will be our last passage. In verse 7, I'm just going to warn you, by the way, this is, it does this. I have a whole book on John's um, style of writing, and it's just this, but it's, man, it's, uh, it's heavy. So he's talking about God's love and our love all combined into this one passage. And he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is what? Love. This is how God showed his love among us. So here's the Christmas story again. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, because oftentimes we just discover that God loves us. Some people seek Him, other people just, they just bump into it. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. So there's John 3.16 again, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So He pushes the Christmas story outward. Let's live Christmas, basically. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and His love is made complete in us. So, very simply, uh, the God you worship is seen in you. The message of Christ comes from your life. We know that we live in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God that he has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, and we're getting to the big finish here, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. So there's that word again, that confidence in his presence. Because in this world, we are like him. Verse 18, 
on the screen for you. There is no, what? Fear in love. It's like he says all that to get here. There's no fear in this love. But perfect love, the love that God has, drives out fear. Amen? I mean, that's what we're talking about. When the shepherds are freaked out and God says, don't be afraid, my love is going to drive that fear. So it's moving from fear to comfort and God's loving presence. Perfect love drives out fear. And so let me close with this, uh, I don't know what this is, this little riff about letting God's love have its way with me. That's the message of Christmas. Just let me have my way with you. Um, anybody pick up the Advent readings a few weeks ago? Anybody do these? Nobody? Okay, we're just going to do them all right now then. Because I worked, I worked dang hard on that handout. Uh, <laughs> one of those moments where you're like, man, could have played golf. All right, so um, it started... It's 28 days of reading, six passages a day. And if you did read them, if you were reading any of them, and maybe you stopped after the first reading and you're about to find out, find out why, uh, it started really dark. Like, we started to read them to my son, and he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's no manger in there. There's no Santa. <laughs> this is the first reading of the 28-day of the journey in the Advent uh, set of readings. Are you ready? Uh, and it's, this is it right here. This is, this is how it all started. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. Jingle bells, jingle bells. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why should you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Whatever. For the sole of your foot and the, to the top of your head, there's no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners. Right before you laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughters of Zion, they're left like a shelter in the vineyard, like a hut in the field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty has left us some survivors we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Why does it begin there? And honestly, that's how it read for two weeks. Well, it, it's significant, but the season and the readings of the season, they invite us back into a place where we recognize a need for God's love. They invite us, if you will,
back into the darkness of our own sin, where we are hoping that there's a loving God who will deal with me in a loving way. It invites us back into our need. We usually run into Christmas with our wants, but Advent says, let's start with the need. And again, we were reading these at home, and it's just like, wow, that's not very happy. That doesn't sound like Lenox Mall on Saturday. Maybe it does, actually. Laid to waste before you. But you get the picture, right? But what it's doing is it's pulling us back into those dark corners of our lives where there is a need, where we think about our need for salvation. But last Sunday, just past the halfway mark, I was doing the readings and it said, uh, under the Psalms portion, it said Psalm 63, Psalm 98, and Psalm 103. And I smiled because that is really the most worn out page in my Bible. I love this one. Psalm 103 becomes the turn in the readings. And here's some, some uh, passages from that psalm. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Whew. I mean, do you hear that? It, we just read the first part. He doesn't treat us. But there is something that we do deserve, but He doesn't treat us that way or repay us according to our iniquities. So He's not keeping a kind of score. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, that's profound. That's a long way, by the way. So far as he removed our transgressions from us, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. There's that word again. For he knows how we are formed. In other words, he is not separated from our struggles. We read about that in Hebrews. He, he sympathizes with us. So he remembers how we are formed. He knows. He knows that when he shows up, we will often be terrified. And he knows that he will have to say over and over, don't be afraid because I, I love you. Romans 8 says that uh, there is nothing that can separate us. It says neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And in closing, let me just break that down for you in this way. In one way, Paul is saying that there is nothing, uh, that, God, that God loves you no matter what. That's certainly a phrase. That's certainly an angle. There isn't anything you can do or become that he would find you unlovable. But another angle, and this might be healthier to understand, is that He's also saying there isn't any way to get away from it, even if you try. See, that's the thing. Even if you want to run from His love, you, you can't. Now, I can't break down every situation, but if you run from God, 
He will continually send tracers of his love to you. It might be through his people. Maybe you hate the church, but you got some friends that love Jesus, and they just keep sending tracers. Or maybe you don't feel like God loves you, but you come here and that's what you hear over and you're always going to hear it. Right? So in each and every situation, what Paul is saying is there isn't any kind of situation where you can hide from God's love. He's going to keep pushing and pursuing and making known his love to you. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, says it this way. The founders of other major religions essentially came as teachers, not as saviors. They came to say, do this and you will find the divine. But Jesus came essentially as a savior rather than a teacher, though he was that as well. Jesus says, I am the divine, come to you to do what you could not do for yourselves. The Christian message is that we are saved not by our record, but by Christ's record. Amen? That's it. For God so loved the world that he did those things, that he came, as John says in his first chapter in verse 14, that he made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh, came here. Paul says in Philippians 2 in that wonderful poem, song, hymn, or all three, that God left heaven and be put on the very nature of a servant, a slave, lived among us to do this. Why? Love. A kind of love that you and I can't completely wrap our heads around. But I want to leave you today with just, again, that same, uh, what is it, the same um, message that the shepherds got. An unlovable group hearing, don't be afraid of me, don't be afraid of this God, because he loves you. Is that good? Does that make sense? So, uh, I'll pray, and then we still have some, some musical business to do. We're going to sing some more, uh, as we always do. Uh, during which, by the way, I think Jeffrey will lead us in, uh, if you need some time for prayer, you can do that. Um, you may just want to sit and reflect on what you've heard today. You may just want to reread the texts, or you may just want to sing. But either way, uh, we're going to change gears a little bit and head into a time where we just kind of reflect back to God what we know of Him. And so if you would, please stand with me, and uh, I'll pray, and then we'll sing a couple songs.